If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from DC and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj here with a super special announcement before we get into today's episode. I started Beyond the Pearls podcast in May of 2021, and now, almost two years later, we're coming up to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe it. And you know what? I'm getting a little palpitations right here, a little, you know, SVT, superventricular tachycardia. I can't help it. I always drop these pearls, you know. Reaching the 100th episode is a huge milestone. And to celebrate it, I wanted to do something special, which is give away digital copies of my latest book. And what's the title? It's going to be Morning Report, the subspecialties, of course, beyond the pearls. And I made the little hand gesture, but you can't see it. So if you're hearing this, check the show notes and learn more about the contest and click the link to get entered. And you can be one of six winners to receive a copy of the book. Thank you all so much for listening. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls Medical Podcast. And today, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be in the mood for. You know, should we do something on the heart? I know everyone loves when I give these cardiology talks. Should I just go back to my bread and butter, which is going to be the lungs, because I am the pulmonologist. But, you know, I was kind of looking back on all my previous podcasts. And, you know, I haven't given a spiel about the kidney in some time. So what do you folks think? Should we make this nephrology day? Yeah, let's do it. I'm kind of excited to talk about the kidney. So now the question becomes, what should be the topic for today's podcast? And I was thinking about doing something that often goes under the radar, but is triple star high yield for the USMLE and the IM boards. So today's topic is going to be about acute interstitial nephritis. So before I just go diving into that, because that's going to be no fun. And for those of you who have heard my podcast before, you know, before we talk about one specific tree, I always like talking about the forest. So we'll all be on the same page. So what is going to be the broader picture when we talk about acute interstitial nephritis, acute kidney injury? So when we talk about AKI, well, it's characterized by a sudden decrease in kidney function. And it's going to be accompanied by 
I'm gonna say four main things for your boards, okay? Let's keep it simple. The first thing that acute kidney injuries, uh, you know, characterized by is a decrease in urine output. And that's gonna be so important clinically, especially I'm gonna wear my, my critical care hat right now. When you're hanging out with me in the medical ICU and probably one of the most common things I, I see is gonna be sepsis. It's so important to see if we're perfusing the kidney. How is the kidney doing? And that's why, what do we do? Strict I's and O's, strict ins and outs, because I want to see if kidney function is going down. And I'm not going to wait till we do labs in the morning, we're getting that basic metabolic panel and looking at serum creatinine. No way I'm not going to wait for that. I'm going to get hour to hour updates by looking at that urine output. So a decrease in urine output is definitely going to categorize AKI. What's the second thing? It's going to be fluid retention. So once again, let's go back to the medical ICU. Many patients in the ICU are going to be short of breath for a variety of reasons. And you can imagine that if your kidneys are damaged, you're in AKI and you're not making urine, you're going to be retaining all that fluid. And some of that fluid is going to build up in the lungs. It's going to be called pulmonary edema. And it's going to make it a lot harder to breathe. And that's another reason why we have to monitor urine output. That's another reason why certain individuals may benefit from giving whoop diuretics to make sure they don't get fluid overloaded to prevent them from going on mechanical ventilation. So fluid retention is going to be the second thing we think about with AKI. What about the third? The answer is metabolic acidosis. So when we talk about metabolic acidosis secondary to acute kidney injury, I think of both acute kidney injury causing a anion gap metabolic acidosis and a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Now, I'm going to have to do a separate podcast to go really deep into why that occurs. But for today, let's keep it simple. The way I think about it conceptually is that if the damage is in the glomerulus, most of the time, that's when you get the anion gap metabolic acidosis. That's when you get that buildup of urea and all these nitrogenous waste products. That's when the patient becomes really uremic. Now, if you're going to have a non-gap metabolic acidosis, where is the damage going to be? Well, it's probably going to be in the tubules. And that's why we talk about things like RTA, renal tubular acidosis. And I got to tell you, there's nothing more confusing than RTAs, which reminds me, maybe that will make a great podcast next time. So maybe that's when we'll talk more about RTAs, but RTAs are associated with a non-gap metabolic acidosis. And the fourth thing I think about for acute kidney injury are going to be people who are now becoming hyperkalemic, people whose potassium in the serum is just shooting up there. And when we think about hyperkalemia, of course, this is going to be very dangerous to the patient. Why? Arrhythmias. And that's why when someone is hyperkalemic, we think about checking that ECG. And of course, we think about giving things like calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Why? Because it will hopefully stabilize the heart. And then of course, we want to lower that serum potassium. And the quickest way to probably lower serum potassium is putting the potassium one place. Where is that? Inside the cell. And how do we do that? Well, I think the most common answer clinically on board exams is always giving insulin. Of course, you don't want the patient to be hypoglycemic, so we definitely give some glucose anytime we give the insulin. But there are other ways to lower serum potassium 
but it takes a while. So loop diuretics like furosemide, making the patient have diarrhea, of course, it takes a while to lower serum potassium. The fastest way to do it is to put it in the cell itself. And of course, if you have refractory high pot uh, potassium called hyperkalemia, you could think about things like dialysis. But also another electrolyte I wanted to mention besides hyperkalemia and acute kidney injury is hyperphosphatemia. So I wanted to mention those, okay? So acute kidney injury is usually accompanied by four things, decrease in urine output, fluid retention, metabolic acidosis, and both hyperkalemia and hyperphosphatemia. So how do we define what acute kidney injury is? So I'm going to be using something called the KDGO. And some of you right now are like, what did he say? <laughs> That's KDGO. K-D-I-G-O. That stands for the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes. So KDGO defines acute kidney injury by any of the following. And there are three of them, okay? So the first thing is an increase in serum creatinine by greater than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours. So that's not a lot. So if you go back and you're rounding in the medical ICU and you look at, you know, your patient's serum creatinine over two days, you know, jumping up by 0.3 is not a lot. So maybe we're underestimating or not identifying as many people who are in kidney damage that we sometimes maybe overlook. The second thing that Kidigo defines for acute kidney injury is an increase in serum creatinine to greater than or equal to 1.5 times the baseline over a week. And the third thing is urine volume, that if it's less than 0.5 mLs per kilogram per hour for six hours, well, that defines acute kidney injury using the KDGO, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, definition. So with that being said, I'm ready for the next thing, which is going to be, well, what are going to be those three main categories when we talk about, you know, acute kidney injury? And I'm going way back to med school on this one because we classically clinically define acute kidney injury in three categories, pre-renal, post-renal, and intrarenal. So let's talk about the pre and the post. And then for intrarenal, of course, that's where acute interstitial nephritis really falls. So for pre-renal, it's going to be probably the most common cause of acute kidney injury. And what are going to be some of the differential under pre-renal? Well, number one, if you have decreased blood volume. So let's go back to my step one takers right now. When we say blood volume, that's made up of two main things. What two things make up the blood volume? Number one, the cells of the blood. And where are those cells of the blood? You know, RBCs, white blood cells, and platelets. Of those three, which is always going to be the most predominant? The RBCs. And of course, the percent of RBCs in the blood is referred to as what? The hematocrit. So what is going to be the second part of blood volume? is going to be the plasma. And what is the most predominant part of the plasma? The answer is water. So when we talk about losing water, whether you're vomiting and you have a metabolic alkalosis, whether you have diarrhea and have a non-GAT metabolic acidosis, when you're losing the water, which is the predominant part of plasma, what happens to blood volume? It decreases. 
So you get decreased perfusion of the kidney and you get pre-renal problems. What else is there a cause of a pre-renal renal failure? Decreased effective circulating volume. What do I mean by that? It's going to be people who have all their volume where? Not inside the vessel. It's going to be in the third space. They're going to present with edema. And one of the classic examples of that are people with cirrhosis. Their total blood volume or their total body water is up there, but it's not where it needs to be. It's not in the vessel. And therefore, intravascularly, it's almost like they're deplete and having decreased perfusion of the kidney itself. The third thing that can present with that kind of that pre-renal presentation is someone who has no decreased cardiac output. Maybe they have heart failure. And of course, when that blood leaves that left ventricle, if you have damage to the heart, you're not going to have that blood volume perfusing those essential organs, including the kidney, which is why there's something called cardiac renal syndrome. So that's why we think about people with decreased cardiac output can cause a pre-renal problem. People who have all their volume wear in the third space have decreased effective circulating volume. And of course, people are truly volume deplete because of the fact they have things like diarrhea or vomiting. So what's other things that can cause a pre-renal problem? Well, you can think about people who have renal vascular disease. And two things really jump to mind. Number one, it's someone who has renal artery stenosis. And number two, people have a thrombus in the renal artery itself. And the last thing I wanted to mention, of course, because I know I have my, my, a lot of my USMLE test takers saying, are you going to mention non-steroidals? The answer is yes. Even though non-steroidals are going to be in my talk today when we talk about acute interstitial nephritis, they definitely can cause a pre-renal problem. Why? It's because when we talk about these prostaglandins, that what do they do? They're going to be what? Very potent vasodilators. So when you talk about being on non-steroidal medications and you inhibit them, what's going to happen? They're going to work on the afferent arterial. That's A with a big afferent, okay? And then they're going to be constricting that because you're on non-steroidal medications. It's kind of like having that pre-renal type presentation. So if it's going to be pre-renal, it's going to be post-renal. And post-renal basically means obstruction. And it can be obstruction at different levels, at the ureters, the bladder, at the urethra. And of course, what's left in the middle, that's going to be intrarenal. And when we talk about intrarenal problems, three things jump to mind if it's going to be intrarenal. It's going to be a problem with the glomerulus. So when we talk about the glomerulus, that's going to be that tuft of capillaries that leads from where? The afferent arterial. And that tuft of capillaries, the glomerulus, is going to be inside Bauman's capsule. That's where filtration occurs. The most important thing that the kidney does is always going to be filtration. And then when those glomerular capillaries exit Bauman's capsule, it does to the efferent arterial, which makes the circulation so unique. It's artery, capillary, artery. And of course, the efferent arterial will eventually lead to these peritubular capillaries. So it's artery, capillary, artery, capillary. Very strange, huh? So of course, when we think about intrarenal problems, there could be damage to the glomerulus. Of course, I'm referring to 
nephritic and nephrotic syndromes. The problem could be where? In the tubules. So when we think about the tubules, we always start off with the proximal tubule, where we do a lot of reabsorption. That leads into the loop of Henle. That leads into the distal tubule, which will eventually lead into where? The collecting duct. And from the collecting duct, that leads into the renal pelvis. And eventually, you're going to be making some urine. So the problem could be happening in the tubules itself. And the classic example, tubule damage is going to be what? Acute tubular necrosis, ATN. Then the last place where it could occur is going to be the interstitium, what we're talking about today. It's going to be in the area surrounding the tubules. So that's going to be the acute interstitial nephritis. So finally, after I kind of painted this whole forest, we're going to be talking about that one tree, A-I-N. So let's do a little introduction. So when we talk about acute interstitial nephritis, it is a condition involving a rapid decline in renal function, hence the word acute. And I would say when we talk about acute kidney injuries, that around 10 to 20% of all acute kidney injuries are due to acute interstitial nephritis. And one thing I just wanted to mention, that AIN is often non-oleuric. Now, why am I mentioning this? Is because when we contrast it to something like acute tubular necrosis, Where's the problem? In the tubules. Most of the times, because there's decreased perfusion to the tubules, there's going to be a decrease in delivery of oxygen. You're going to get necrosis. You're going to get ischemia. And when that happens, you're going to be sloughing off those cells in the walls of the tubules, and it's going to obstruct the tubule. And when it obstructs the tubule, you can't make that, that filtrate that's eventually going to lead into the urine flow into the renal pelvis, everything just backs up. All that pressure is going to back up to the tubules, preventing that filtration from the glomerular capillaries into the proximal tubule. And that's when you get all that kidney damage. So when we think about acute interstitial nephritis, well, the problem really isn't in the tubule itself causing that obstruction. It's in the interstitium surrounding the tubule. So it does make clinical sense that they often are non-oleuric, but because I'm sure a nephrologist is going to listen to this, it can be, but it usually is not. So what causes acute interstitial nephritis? Well, when it put into four main classes, medications, infections, systemic conditions, and of course, I don't know, idiopathic. So when we talk about, you know, medications, you know, drugs are the most common cause of AIN. So what are going to be the big culprits? Antibiotics. And which ones? Well, definitely the beta-lactam drugs. So you think about penicillins, cephalosporins, carbapenems. Definitely quinolones can do that. So you think things like um, classic uh, levofloxacine, moxifloxacine, ciprofloxacine can definitely do it. Rifampin can definitely do it. And besides antibiotics, what other drugs can do that? Non-steroidals. I know I mentioned that already. Another thing that's going to be important to mention is COX-2 inhibitors can do it. Proton pump inhibitors can do it. And a favor for the board exam are always going to be PPIs because, you know, I grew up in the era where almost everyone was on a PPI because we didn't realize many of the side effects that can occur from being on them. So please think about, you know, proton pump inhibitors can definitely do it. Diuretics can do it. Ferrosamide, thiazides can definitely do it. Allopurinol can do it. And 
anticonvulsants like phenytoin can definitely do it. So drugs are going to be one of the most common causes. The second one is going to be infections. They could be any type of infections, bacterial infections like GI bugs like E. coli, Campylobacter, Salmonella can do it. Viruses can do it, such as HSV, CMB, EBV. Funguses can do it, such as, you know, these endemic fungi like coccidioides or histoplasmosis. And even parasites can do it, protozoa, such as toxoplasmosis. The third thing is going to be these rheumatological disease, such as systemic lupus erythematosus, Sjogren's, and even sarcoid. So we think about those non-caseating granulomas that can occur. And of course, four is going to be idiopathic. So with that being said, how do we make the diagnosis? And of course, more importantly, how do we treat it? But before we just jump right into there, I know everyone's excited. I want to take a quick moment to talk about some of the clinical features of acute interstitial nephritis. So many people who have this can be asymptomatic. They won't even realize they have it. So I just want to mention that first. In regards to urine output, they tend to be non-oliguric, but some can be oliguric. Um, depending on how bad the kidney function is, they could have nausea, they could have vomiting, they could have non-specific fatigue and malaise. And if it's really a big backup of pressure, they could have flank pain, almost similar findings of someone who has like pyelonephritis or hydronephrosis. So what are going to be some of the lab findings? Well, I can't stress this enough, sterile pyuria. Of course, you're going to get a urine analysis. And if you see lots and lots of white blood cells in there, but the culture is negative, you think about sterile pyuria. And with that being said, you could definitely get some white blood cell casts in there. Sometimes you could have, you know, protein, proteinuria, but it's going to be in the subnephrotic range. Let me just say subnephrotic range most of the time. You may have some microscopic hematuria. And of course, when we talk about the serum itself, I mean, peripheral eosinophilia is one of the things we classically memorize, though in my next couple of slides, you're going to find out it's not that common to see it. And most of the time, if you're going to have peripheral eosinophilia, it's going to be secondary to probably a drug reaction, which is the most common cause of acute interstitial nephritis. So with that being said, how are you going to make the diagnosis on the boards? How are you going to make the diagnosis on the wards? So we definitely want to get that urine analysis. You definitely want to get the appropriate, you know, blood work, such as a CBC with um, differential. You definitely want to get a basic metabolic panel or complete metabolic panel. And, you know, of course, I'm going to dive into kidney biopsy probably after a uh, practice question we're going to have in a few seconds. But not everyone needs a biopsy. That's going to be the stress about that. So how do you treat it? Well, most of the time it's going to be secondary to a medication. So of course, remove the offending agent, treat the underlying cause, whether it's going to be this autoimmune rheumatological disease or it's going to be secondary to a infection, whether it's bacterial, viral, protozoan, fungus. And always the spicy thing to talk about is steroids. Now, not everyone needs steroids. And we're going to jump into that shortly after my practice question. But if you're going to be giving someone steroids, then the question now becomes, are those the individuals that probably need the biopsy to confirm the diagnosis? But let's put that in the back burner. We're going to dive in in one second. And of course, clinically, if the kidneys are not recovering, you may have to consider dialysis, unfortunately. So finally, practice question, because what does everyone always like to say? 
after all this wonderful pearls, how are they going to ask me this on a USMLE or internal medicine board question? Well, here's how they're going to do it. We have a 46-year-old woman who's evaluated for a serum creatinine level of 2.6 milligrams per deciliter. Her baseline serum creatinine around three months ago was 0.9 milligrams per deciliter. She has no symptoms. What a surprise. Two years ago, she started on low sartanin ARB and amylodipine, which is a dihydroperidine calcium channel blocker for her hypertension. Then one year ago, she started on omeprazole, a proton pump inhibitor for her gastroesophageal reflux disease, and naproxen, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug uh, for her knee osteoarthritis. Around eight months ago, she was started on atorvastatin for hyperlipidemia. This is an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor. On exam, she is a febrile with a temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is uh, 138 over 86. And the remainder of the exam is unremarkable. They do a urine analysis, as they should, and it shows the following. Specific gravity was 1.015, and that's what? Normal. So, you know, when I think about specific gravity, we're always comparing the urine to the gravity of what? Water. So if you're going to have a very high urine osmolarity, you'll probably have a high specific gravity, but this one's normal. Urine pH is 5.5, which is normal. There is 1 plus erythrocytes and 3 plus leukocytes and 1 plus leukocyte esterates, but no nitrates. And looking under the microscope, there's greater than 100 leukocytes per high-powered field with a couple of WBC uh, granular casts. Which of the following drugs should be discontinued in this patient? Uh oh, should we discontinue A, the atorvastatin and the amylodipine? B, the losartan and the amylodipine? C, the losartan and the omeprazole? D, the naproxen, naproxen and the atorvastatin? Or E, the naproxen and the omeprazole? And if you guys were listening to my podcast just a little bit, the answer is going to be, there's no antibiotics here. So it's going to be the non-steroidal medication and the proton pump inhibitor. The answer here is going to be E. So drug-induced acute interstitial nephritis, you know, usually does happen to antibiotics. But of course, proton pump inhibitors and non-steroidals are the most common causes of acute interstitial nephritis and should be considered in any patient with acute kidney injury that has that characteristic urine analysis. And what did I put there? Lots and lots of WBCs. I try to paint someone with sterile pyuria and definitely have the history of drug exposure. Now, if you're waiting for this classic clinical presentation of fever and rash and peripheral eosinophilia, you know, that only occurs in about 10%, maybe 30% of patients who have acute interstitial nephritis. So before I say goodbye to you folks, I want to go a little bit of beyond the pearls. So what are going to be my beyond the pearls for acute interstitial nephritis? Uh, well, the first one's going to be drug-induced acute interstitial nephritis from non-steroidals and select cyclooxygenase 2 inhibitors, COX-2 inhibitors, are usually not associated with fever, rash, or the peripheral eosinophilia, and develops, you know, that renal failure 6 to 12 months after the drug exposure. Now, acute interstitial nephritis 
from non-steroidals might be associated with nephrotic syndrome. Remember I said usually they don't have nephrotic range protein in the urine. Uh, the reason why is that these non-steroidals uh, can be associated with minimal change glomerulopathy or membranous nephropathy. So because of that, you may get some nephrotic range protein if you're having AIN secondary to non-steroidal medications. And if you heard my phone, that definitely was it. <laughs> I guess this podcast is, is it's almost done. Let me finish first. Um, the onset of a proton pump inhibitor-induced acute interstitial nephritis is variable, but typically occurs around 10 to 13 weeks after the exposures. And proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole or esmoeprazole uh, are thought to be a risk factor for the development of chronic kidney disease. So PPIs are not as benign as you think. Renal recovery from drug-induced AIN is usually complete if the drug is stopped immediately after the onset of kidney injury, but it may take weeks to several months, okay? So there are some people that develop an irreversible interstitial fibrosis known as chronic tubular interstitial nephritis. This can develop after two weeks of continued exposure once you start developing the renal failure, unfortunately. And the last thing I wanted to mention is going to be about kidney biopsy. So kidney biopsy could be considered if there's no improvement, no improvement in kidney function after five to seven days of drug discontinuation. And why would you consider doing this is because early glucocorticoid administration may limit the damage associated with drug-induced AIN. And of course, biopsy is going to be the gold standard. Of course, there's going to be risks. Of course, you want to do shared decision-making, but not everyone gets a biopsy. But this is when you do consider it and there's no improvement after you stop the drug and you're thinking about giving things such as steroids, which will also suppress your immune system. So with this being said, I hope you enjoyed my little trip to the kidney, I was fired up for it this week. And I think acute interstitial nephritis is high yield for your boards and awards. See you next time on Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa. Vita Brevis. <laughs>